Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. Keeping the Sabbath. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the resident alien in your towns so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I'm getting it all in last week and this week because I'm away for the next three weeks so uh, it was a bit self-indulgent but anyway it's good to see you. In last week's sermon and uh, if you weren't here last week and you missed it uh, I refer you of course to the podcast, the YouTube, the Facebook and all the other ways you can catch up on anything you've missed. In last week's sermon we looked at the ancient Hebrew economic principles of Sabbath and sabbatical and jubilee. And we saw how sabbatical and jubilee offer a persistent challenge to unregulated systems of capital acquisition with their call for the forgiveness of debts and a less exploitative relationship with the land, with the planet, that we look to for our resources. We also saw how this theme of economic and ecological forgiveness is rooted deep within the Christian tradition, with the Lord's Prayer itself calling us to forgive the debts of others even if as our own debts are forgiven by God. And we learned how these two principles of sabbatical and jubilee are themselves the logical extension of an underlying principle, which is that of Sabbath, which the Hebrew Bible tells us is written into the fundamental relationship between God and humans and creation. It's written into the creation account of Genesis and codified as a divine law in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy. And despite whatever else it might come to mean for us, the Sabbath command is also an economic command. It is a demand that people should not work on the seventh day that they should not earn money for one day per week. 
In the interests of showing one's working in preparing this week's sermon, I've been greatly influenced by reading um, Walter Brueggemann's wonderful book, Sabbath as Resistance, and I commend it to you. If you want to take what we're talking about this morning a little bit further, and uh, I've had conversations previously with Udoka, one of our deacons and trustees, who's currently at the back on the sand desk. We've talked about the idea of uh, rest as resistance. Um, and, and again, that's a worthwhile conversation to take this further if you want to. Walter Brueggemann describes a variety of resistances that he identifies as emerging from the Sabbath command to desist from work in one day each week. So he talks about resistance to anxiety and resistance to exclusivism. He talks about resistance to multitasking. And the one that is relevant to our reading for this morning resistance to coercion. In Deuteronomy 5, you see, we find ourselves in the world of the Ten Commandments. The laws originally given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, as the Israelites made their way from slavery under Egypt to freedom, from Egypt to promised land. The uh, the Ten Commandments were given initially near the beginning of their 40 years of wilderness wandering. And they depict in this period of wandering in the wilderness, Israel trying to work out what it's going to be. What, what path will it follow eventually? How is Israel going to live? as God's chosen and holy nation. They're no longer people under slavery, but they haven't yet worked out what kind of people they're going to be. And for them, the wilderness was this time of exploration, of thinking, of reflection, of uh, daily reliance on the goodness of God in the manner and the quail that came down each day to sustain them. Anyway, in the time following their initial great act of faithful obedience, that of following Moses through the waters of the Red Sea into the wilderness of Sinai, the people of Israel find themselves have something, having something of a crisis of confidence in the desert. I sometimes tell this story to people when I prepare them for baptism. Because, you know, you build up to your moment of baptism. In the Baptist tradition, this is something we, we do to people on profession of faith, not, not to them when they're children. And you think as you go through the waters of baptism, as, as you echo that journey of the people of Israel and led by Moses going through the waters of the Red Sea, you think that's when you enter the promised land. But what happens in Israel's story, it is followed by a huge crisis of confidence in faith and so often that's our story too and I just want to normalize that for us a crisis of confidence in faith is part of what it means to be part of God's people anyway you know the story well I'm sure Moses leaves the people of Israel to go up the mountain for uh, and, and as he he does so all the anxieties of Israel that they have brought with them from slavery start to bubble to the surface. 
Suddenly their God seems distant and now their prophet is absent. And in their acute anxiety, they gather their gold, their precious earrings, their most treasured possessions, and from their gathered gold, they make a new God. In that moment of anxiety, they imagined that they could somehow throw enough resources at the problem and make their anxiety go away. And th to this day, God-making anxiety, amid anxiety remains a standard human response. So often in our anxiety, we think we can buy our way out of the problem. We think we can buy and build security in our lives and our communities. And so we make our own idols of gold and we devote ourselves to them in the hope that they at least will not let us down. Moses returns from the mountain after his conversation with God bearing the tablets, the stone tablets on which have been written the words of the law that is going to guide Israel and shape God's people. And in his shock at what he sees has happened whilst he's been gone, he drops them and breaks them and they shatter. And so he has to go back up the mountain again to try again, to plead with God to receive again a list of commands to help the people learn to live in trust and relationship with God in the midst of what is always going to be an anxious world. And so we get the Ten Commandments given by God to Israel. And one of those commands is the Sabbath command. That's the one we're homing in on this morning as part of our short summer series looking at Sabbath. Anyway, the years and the decades pass in the wilderness, wanderings of Israel, and eventually after 40 years, the people came to the Jordan River, ready to enter at long last the promised land. But it has been a long time since Sinai. A new generation has grown up who don't remember the story of the golden calf so well, and an aging Moses gives Israel renewed instruction for what it will mean for them to live in the promised land. And so we've moved from chapter 20 of the book of Exodus to chapter 5 of the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses's, Moses's, Moses' sermon that we find in Deuteronomy lasts for 30 chapters. <laughs> he clearly regards the move to a new land as a high-risk venture. And he wants to be sure that Israel understands that the old desert covenant still pertains to this new agricultural territory that they're about to enter into. So Moses stands on the bank of the River Jordan, looking over at Canaan, this fertile land flowing with milk and honey, and he regards it as an enormous temptation, a huge seduction to his people Israel. He knows that the affluence of the land 
is sure to create another crisis of faith for them. The problem before Israel is that this new land will work so well. They will come to think of it as their land and it will be a land that can sustain them so well that they can manage on their own and thus they will be tempted to autonomy without due reference to the Lord their God and whilst they might not make another golden calf they will still build their idols of gold and trust them for security the wilderness lesson of manna and quail of food that is given each day enough for that day alone and which will not keep for tomorrow that lesson is about to be forgotten in the glories of fields and farming and barns and storehouses and the development of money and economy and all of the stuff that Israel is about to enter into. The reason Israel will be tempted in this way is that this new land will make them inordinately prosperous. The lowlands of Israel between the river and the sea, an area known as the Shephelah, are wonderfully fertile for growing wheat and grazing crops and growing olives and fruit and vines. I mean, it, it's a glorious, it's a glorious land. It's not for nothing, you know, that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus has his disciples pray, give us today our daily bread. It's taking us, even now, back to daily reliance. Moses knows that prosperity can breed amnesia, and so he warns Israel about amnesia. Chapter 6, verse 12, Take care that you do not forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Chapter 8, verse 14, Then do not exalt yourself, forgetting the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Moses is worried that the Israelites might forget where they came from, forget the circumstances that they had left behind in Egypt, that they might forget that they had themselves for many generations lived under a system of unbearable coercion where they had had to meet impossible production schedules of more and yet more bricks at the hands of their Egyptian slave masters. They had been the victims of a system of capitalist acquisition and consumption. And now they were about to become the masters of just such a system. Moses anticipates that if they do not remain alert to the God of emancipation, they will end up just right back in another system of coercion, but this time it will be them that does it. It would be very easy to draw comparisons to the situation many of us in this room have witnessed in that land at the moment. I don't think there is a direct line from there to where we are now with Israel-Palestine. But I do think there is a call 
for the people of God to be better before God. And Moses saw the temptation to not do that as he stood on the banks of the Jordan and looked over at what we now call the Holy Land. The problem is that because the land is so fertile, its produce can make Israel safe and happy. And the inescapable logic of production is that if ancient Israel can increase its produce, it will be even safer and even happier. How much money do you need to earn to be safe and happy? It's always a little bit more than you earn at the moment, isn't it? Whatever your income is at the moment, a little bit more is probably all you need until you've got a little bit more, at which point you need, you need just a little bit more. And so it goes on. In time, Israel will discover that the sky is the limit. The fertility of the land and the domestication of the wheat that grows there that I spoke of a couple of weeks ago and the productivity of the systems of agriculture that they will invent will make Israel of old an acquisitive nation. Ancient Israel will come to think that the goal of its life as a nation is to acquire and acquire and acquire. And in order to keep on acquiring, Israelites will eventually end up in competition with their ancient neighbours and the systems of ever increasing acquisition will turn neighbour into competitor and competitor into threat and challenge and then we end up into the story of Israel's wars with its neighbours that occupy so much of the rest of the story of Israel told through the Hebrew scriptures which we're going to be coming on to and looking at as we journey through the Hebrew Bible between now and, uh, East and the beginning of Advent. And so Moses warns Israel, watch out! All the land and all of its productivity will transform Israelites into producers and consumers and will destroy the fabric of covenantal neighbourliness to which they have been called. And Moses understands, as do the prophets after him, that being in the land poses for Israel a conflict between two economic systems, each of which views the land differently. On the one hand, the land is regarded as property and possession to be bought and sold and traded and used and exploited. On the other hand, in a context of covenant established at Sinai, the land is instead regarded as an inheritance. One's own bit of land is merely a subset of a larger inheritance given to the whole people of God in trust for future generations. It's clear which of these perspectives was appropriate to Sinai and the years in the wilderness where they were unsettled people, camping, moving on, camping, moving on, the land only ever borrowed for a time before handed on to whoever needed it next. But in its amnesia and wealth, Moses is concerned that Israel may forget its covenantal frame of reference and generate an economy that is anti-neighbourly in order to have more and ever more. And so in his great interpretative manoeuvre, Moses asserts in chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, 
the Lord our God made a covenant with us at Sinai. Not with our ancestors did the Lord make this covenant, but with us. With all of us who are here alive today, standing on the shores of the Jordan, looking over at the land that we are about to conquer. Moses remembers the ancient covenant of Sinai made to a previous generation of Israel, but he asserts that this covenant is still immediately relevant to the new generation of Israel that are about to enter the land. And if it is relevant to them, it is relevant to all succeeding generations of the people of God down, dare I say it, to us today. This is the core argument of the book of Deuteronomy, that the economy is not a rat race in which people remain exhausted from coercive goals as they were under slavery in Egypt. They have been set free from coercive economics. Instead, the economy of the people of God is to be an outworking of covenant for the sake of the whole community, for the good of all people, for the good of the land itself. Even in a new circumstance of agricultural possibility, the old desert covenant should remain defining. The land is not yours to keep and exploit. The land is yours to use as a gift from God and use it well because it goes on to those who come after you. Everything we have is borrowed from the future, on loan from God. And so Moses repeats the Ten Commandments. A generation on from when they were first given at Sinai, recorded in Exodus 20, here in Deuteronomy 5, he repeats them again, and he includes the command to observe the Sabbath. I'll read it to you again. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male or female slave or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or any of the resident aliens in your towns so that your male and female slave may rest as well as you. Sabbath is proclaimed by Moses as the great day of equality, when all are equally at rest, humans enslaved and free, animals and land alike are given their equal rest. Sure, not all are equal in production. Some perform more efficiently than others. Not all are equal in consumption. Some have greater access to consumer goods. And we might, I am sure, want to take issue with the concept of people owning slaves. Those who are enslaved in our world need their freedom, don't they? They need their rest. Moses knows that in a society defined by production and consumption, there are going to be huge gradations of performance and benefit and worth and significance. 
A society defined by production and consumption will create the poor as well as the rich, the enslaved, as well as those who live in freedom. And this is as true in our world as it was in his. And Moses knows that in such a social system, everyone is in danger of being coerced to perform better, produce more, consume more, to be the perfect shopper and the perfect worker. Such valuing creates the haves and the have-nots, the significant and the insignificant, the rich and the poor, people with access and people denied access. But, says Moses, all are equal in rest. Sabbath is a vision that breaks the gradations caused by coercion. Because on Sabbath, you do not have to do more. You do not have to sell more. You do not have to control more. You do not have to know more. You do not have to get your kids to ballet or soccer. You do not have to be younger or more beautiful. You do not have to score more than the next person. Sabbath, this idea of one day of rest, challenges the cycle of coercion because in rest all are of equal worth, equal value, equal access. And if you can construct a society where all get a chance to rest, that forces society to construct an economics of neighbourliness. And in our own society, we have seen this with the rise of the trades union movements and the push over the last two centuries for greater workers' rights, for universal health care, for the welfare state. I commend that book to you on the common good. Christians, in the name of God and our Saviour, have been instrumental in reshaping the economics of our society for the good of those who would otherwise be ground into the dust. Politics is not just for the politicians, my friends. It is for all of us. These are the contemporary outworkings of the Sabbath principle, where, at least in theory and at least in possibility, all can receive the benefits regardless of their circumstances. It is a deeply Jewish Christian vision of what it means to live in the world. But back to scripture. There's a significant difference in the way the Sabbath command is framed in Deuteronomy compared to its earlier version in Sinai. Back at Sinai, recorded in Exodus 20, where Moses received the tablets of stone on the mountain, the command to rest is framed as a response to God's act of creation. Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Intriguingly, this creation ordinance for Sabbath doesn't get a mention in Deuteronomy. When Moses is standing on the shores of the Jordan, looking at the gates to the promised land. Rather, what we find in Deuteronomy is that the motivation for Sabbath is not God resting on the seventh day in the act of creation. Rather, Moses says they are to rest on the seventh day, quote, 
because they must remember that they were slaves in the land of Egypt, that the Lord their God had brought them out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, says Moses, therefore, because you were slaves in the land of Egypt, God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The reason for Sabbath is Exodus. They are to remember, you see, that the coercive system of Pharaoh under which they were ground into the dust, they are to remember that God disrupted that system. They are to remember the brick quota was declared null and void by Moses speaking for God. And Moses here in Deuteronomy is warning the Israelites that if they forget this, they will give their lives personally and corporately over to coercive competition. But if they can remember Egypt, and if they can hold on to the memory of, Israel, of the Exodus wanderings in the wilderness, they will know that Pharaoh and all similar agents of coercion that may arise stand against God's will and ultimately face God's judgment. You do not need to meet the expectations anyone puts on you, my friends. You do not need to meet the expectations of your mother or your father or your work or your boss or your broker or the little voice that lives at the back of your mind and tells you you're never going to be good enough. You do not need to meet their expectations. You are free from the quota if you remember, if you situate yourself within covenant memory. Moses in Deuteronomy imagines that Sabbath is not only a festival day, but also a new social reality that is carried back from the Sabbath day into days one through six. People who keep the Sabbath, who know what it is to rest occasionally, can then live all the rest of the days differently. The task, according to Moses, is to seven the rest of our lives. And there are two key aspects of new life that are made possible here when patterns of coercion are broken in our lives and in our community by the faithful observance of Sabbath as a day of deep freedom. Firstly, as we saw last week in our sermon on Deuteronomy 15, uh, Moses lays out this radical extra extrapolation of Sabbath. Every seven years, you have a sabbatical when you cancel the debts on the poor. And every seven sabbaticals at the Jubilee, you redistribute the land and release those who have become economically enslaved. That is a challenge to us, I think, in terms of many of our global economic cycles. This is what our good friend Tim, former member of the church who works for Jubilee Debt, would want to say we should be forgiving international global debts from the wealthy to the heavily indebted poor. The intention of this radical sevening of life is that there should be no permanent underclass in Israel. When we fall into coercive patterns, the poor are always targets of economic abuse rather than Sabbath neighbours. 
and those of us who are wealthy need to remember that we too were rescued from enslavement. On the basis of Israel's own experience as slaves, Israel is therefore invited to give liberally, to provide liberally, and so to avoid the temptations of consumptive excess and economic abuse in their own land. That's the first application of it. But secondly, the book of Deuteronomy identifies a, a great triad of vulnerability. It names widows and orphans and immigrants as the most needy members of society who are without protected rights. And the tradition of Deuteronomy is particularly attentive to the needs of these vulnerable, exposed neighbors, widows, orphans, immigrants. In this interpretive tradition, Sabbath is not simply a pause. It is an occasion for reimagining all of social life, away from coercion and competition towards compassionate solidarity. And such solidarity is imaginable and achievable only when the drivenness of acquisitiveness is broken. Sabbath is not simply the pause that refreshes. It is the pause that transforms. Whenever ancient Israel was tempted to acquisitiveness, Sabbath was an invitation back to receptivity, an acknowledgement that what is needed has already been given and therefore need not be seized. And so what does this look like in our world and our lives? How does this ancient economic and theological model take shape in our world and in us? Well, we too know about the vulnerabilities of those whose circumstances in life make them particularly fragile. And the next decades of global life are going to see ongoing waves of people displacement and a persistent need for compassionate and generous responses to those who find themselves refugees in this world. This is why we as God's people need to be active in welcoming refugees and reaching out across ethnic and religious divides. We too know about the hurt caused by bereavement or relationship breakdown as people have to battle not only with grief, but often with changed financial circumstances as well. And there is a need for communities such as this congregation to offer a place of belonging and deep support for those whose lives are in turmoil. Widows and orphans and immigrants. And we too, know how our drive for security in life can cause us to put our faith in the glittering idols of gold as we trust in our possessions to the detriment of our reliance on God. There is a call here, friends, to deep generosity as we are able. And the pattern of giving money and resources to God through the community of faith that we are part of helps us rebalance the economy of faith and is a vital part of our discipleship. 
we too also know the damage to the earth that is caused by excessive consumption as the climate crisis continues to become ever more tangible. And there is a need for people such as us to be willing to see beyond our own circumstances to the wider calls for carbon reduction, pollution control and compassionate consumption through prioritising ethical trading and ethical finance. This principle of Sabbath that we have been holding in our midst over the last three weeks, you see, not only highlights the darkness of the human soul, but also offers a way of breaking that cycle. Friends, we need Sabbath as we are called to rest from the ever spiralling demands of production to resist the call for ever greater acquisition and productivity, to learn that sometimes enough is enough, and to discover that this then might mean that another person can also have enough. And so we find ourselves once again at the words of Jesus, challenging us to a new and better way of being human, we are his disciples sent to the world with a message of good news as we learn to forgive the debts of others, even as our own indebtedness is forgiven by God. God of justice and compassion, we come before you today with hearts full of gratitude and also a deep sense of responsibility. We gather as a diverse and inclusive congregation bound together by our shared commitment to love, justice and compassion. We have been inspired by your word to reflect on the sacred concept of Sabbath and the urgent need for resistance to coercive capitalism. We seek your guidance, strength and help as we navigate these challenging times. Loving God, we acknowledge the beauty and wisdom of your creation and we recognise our role as stewards of this precious earth. In a world driven by the relentless pursuit of profit, we often forget the importance of rest and rejuvenation. We pray that you help us rediscover the true meaning of Sabbath as a day of rest, reflection and equality that restores our connection to you and to one another. And so we lift our voices in intercession for those who toil endlessly in the name of profit, who are trapped in the relentless cycle of consumerism and materialism. We pray for those who work long hours, sacrificing time with their loved ones. And we pray for those who have no choice but to work multiple jobs just to make ends meet. May they find solace and hope in the Sabbath, a reminder that their worth is not measured by their productivity. 
God of justice, we implore you to grant us the courage to resist the coercive forces of empire that exploit the vulnerable and perpetuate inequality. In a world where the rich grow richer while the poor struggle to survive, we pray for a society that prioritizes the well-being of all its members. And as Morocco faces its hour of need, we remember before you all those who have been affected by the earthquake. And we think of the expat Moroccan community here in London who will be fundraising over the next few weeks. We pray for global generosity. Give us the strength to advocate for fair wages, accessible health care and a social safety net that leaves no one behind. Lord, we know that resistance to the forces that dominate our world is not always easy. We are aware that we may face opposition and criticism alongside temptation as we seek to stand against prevailing economic systems and see them remade better in the image of Sabbath. So grant us the wisdom to engage in constructive dialogue, to build bridges of understanding with those who hold different views, and help us to be agents of change, not only in our congregation, but in the wider world as we work towards a more just and equitable society. As we reflect on the Sabbath, we are reminded of the importance of rest for our own well-being. In a culture that glorifies busyness and productivity, we ask for your guidance in setting healthy boundaries, in prioritizing care of ourselves and our families. Help us to remember that our worth is not determined by our accomplishments but by our inherent value as your beloved children. And so we pray for the marginalized and the oppressed who bear the brunt of the consequences of coercive capitalism. We lift up the homeless, the hungry and the unemployed. May they find refuge and support within our community. And may we extend a helping hand to those in need. In our pursuit of justice and resistance, May we never lose sight of the importance of love and compassion. Teach us to love our neighbours as ourselves, to extend grace to those who have been complicit in systems of injustice, to seek reconciliation and healing in all that we do. And so we place our trust in you. We ask for your guidance and strength as we strive to live out the value of Sabbath as resistance. May this congregation be a beacon of light and hope in a world of need, where the greatest need is the need for love and justice. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So go into God's world with love, hope, joy and faith in your hearts. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Creator, Redeemer and Sustainer, be with you all today and forevermore. Amen.